Welcome to the Statesman Journal's Explore Oregon podcast. I'm your host, Zachary Ness, and in each episode, we highlight Oregon's most beautiful and interesting places. This podcast is brought to you by the American Forest Resource Council, supporting responsible forestry on public lands throughout the Pacific Northwest. Learn more at amforest.org. We're also supported by Visit Tillamook Coast, a land of ocean and forest just an hour from the Willamette Valley, that this spring will offer special volunteer vacations designed for visitors to spend a day doing a stewardship project and another heading out for a wild Tillamook Coast adventure. It's free and a way to have fun and give back, and we'll have more details just a little bit later in the show. Finally, the Oregon Parks and Recreation Department invites Oregonians to explore parks during winter and spring to experience the beauty of those seasons. If you're camping, remember to buy firewood from the park or nearby community to avoid bringing invasive species, such as the devastating emerald ash borer, into parks. Learn more about protecting Oregon's ash trees at stateparks.oregon.gov. All right, in today's episode, we're going to talk about the past and future of a seminal moment in Oregon's history, the Labor Day fires. But first, here's some guitar music to get us rolling. Right, in today's edition of the Explore Oregon podcast, we're going to focus on a few different angles of one of the biggest disasters in state history, the Labor Day fires. Now, the reason I'm bringing this up now is that a big event is about to begin, and that is the trial of a mass class action lawsuit between the victims of the Labor Day fires and Pacific Power or Pacific Corp. The victims say Pacific Power was to blame for the generational disaster, and they're suing one of the biggest utilities in the American West for billions of dollars as a result. Now, there have been a ton of lawsuits filed as a result of the fires, but this this is the big one. It's 2,500 properties, probably north of 5,000 people overall, all against Pacific Power. And that trial begins this week. Now, what does that have to do with Oregon's outdoors, you might ask? And that's a fair question. But honestly, the trial serves as kind of an inflection point on where we've been and where we're headed in the aftermath of these fires. In that spirit, I'm going to do a few things with this podcast. So first, I'm going to talk about the future. I'm going to explain a little bit about what's going on with this trial and what's at stake. Then I'm going to include updates on what's happening with the wildfire closures with the roads, with access to areas that burned in the Labor Day fires. And that's gonna include notes about places like Mount Jefferson Wilderness, Opal Creek Wilderness, and places like that, how you can get in there or not this coming summer. I'm also gonna mention a few of the best places to see wildfire impact that are open now. So these were places that were burned in the Labor Day fires, but have reopened. And I think they're interesting just because they show how different fire can impact one landscape. Even though these fires all burned at the same time, they burned at different intensities in different ways. And you can get a feel for that by exploring the scars that they left behind. So I'm going to highlight a few of those, actually quite a few places where you can go and observe that. 
And finally, in the second half, I'm going to repost a podcast that I recorded in the wake of the fires two and a half years ago. So it was still pretty raw at the point where we recorded it, but I did a play-by-play on kind of how the fires happened, what was going on before, what was going on during, and what was going on after. I was right in the middle of the fires, almost literally. I was evacuated for three days from my house and spent a lot of time in the fire zone. It's probably the most intense reporting experience that I have been part of. Anyway, if you're interested in the, the rise of the Labor Day fires, like how it started, how it happened, and you know what happened immediately after, I think that part is covered pretty well. So that'll be in the second part of the podcast. So that's what I've got for you in this edition. If you're interested in more coverage of the Labor Day fires trial, and I've written a lot already and it hasn't even started, I've got a bunch of stories up on the statesmanjournal.com and I'll be covering the trial this week. So look out for that. Okay, let's get into it. All right, so let's start off with the trial. It is the trial of a class action lawsuit that pits thousands of survivors of the Labor Day fires against Pacific Power. It starts this week and will probably last a month and a half or thereabouts. So in a nutshell, this lawsuit and trial focuses on four wildfires that ignited Labor Day night. The four infernos in question are the fires that sparked immediately in the Sanium Canyon. So not out in the forest, but just in the Sanium Canyon. The Echo Mountain Fire near Lincoln City. The 242 Fire north of Klamath Falls and the South Chain Fire in southern Oregon. What the plaintiffs are saying is that Pacific Power is to blame for these fires, and that's for a few reasons. First, and most obviously, they're saying that the reason these fires ignited is that power lines were knocked down or trees fell on them, and that led to sparks, that led to flames, that were whipped up on historically powerful east winds that caused the fires to explode and burn communities. But they're going far beyond just saying that the fires ignited because of the power lines. They're saying that Pacific was negligent and even reckless in the way it operated its power grid. They noted that extreme fire danger was apparent almost a week before Labor Day, that it was clear in the weather reports that this might happen, and that Pacific ignored those warning signs. Even as other utilities shut down their power and more utilities were encouraged to shut down their power, Pacific did not and these fires were a result of that decision. Beyond that, they pointed to poorly maintained power lines and vegetation around the power lines that led to the lines being knocked down and then the fires spreading. In a lot of ways, the claims here mirrored those that were successful against PG&E in California, which eventually went bankrupt in large part because of its role in igniting the fire that burned down the town of Paradise. Now, Pacific has countered with the argument that, look, This historically powerful storm was an unavoidable natural disaster that wrought destruction and confusion across multiple agencies. Nobody was well prepared for what happened. And they add in court documents that the plaintiffs are twisting what little relevant evidence they have, that they're casting reasonable plans as sinister, portraying employees' job responsibilities as reckless, and even suggesting that Pacific Corp's mandate to provide safe and reliable electricity was somehow malicious. So there's obviously a lot more to it, a lot more that's going to be debated and discussed at the trial, but that's kind of the crux of it. That's the argument that the jury will hear over the next month or so. And if they rule against Pacific, 
we could be talking about billions of dollars in a settlement. And this could be a huge deal, both for the utility and for the communities that were impacted. So it'll be pretty fascinating to see what happens. As for the communities, you know, I've spent a lot of time talking to the people who are part of the lawsuit. And, you know, a lot of them could use the money. Victims of the fires have faced not just one, but two generational disasters. The first one was the fires. And then the second was the pandemic and supply chain issues, which have made it very difficult and far more expensive to rebuild. They've faced inflation. They've faced a shortage of contractors. They've faced state money that was earmarked for wildfire survivors, but never showed up. It hasn't been great. And almost three years later, there are still people living in temporary housing who have not been able to rebuild, who are using up all their savings. The ones I talked to said they don't really have high expectations for the trial. They're, just, they're not counting on anything coming through, but they would like to see accountability from Pacific and they would like to be made whole, if only to get some semblance of their lives back. Now, Pacific Power has already settled with victims of the Archie Creek fire outside Roseburg after an investigation determined their power lines ignited that fire. There are also lawsuits in the Mackenzie River corridor against the utility eWeb. There are a number of lawsuits across the state. So we'll just see how this all comes together. But this is a high stakes trial. It has major implications for the Sanium Canyon for the Lincoln City area, for all of these areas, for the state of Oregon, the result of this trial is going to be a pretty big deal. All right, so swinging back into more outdoorsy news, we do have some updates on the extensive fire closures that have limited access to areas burned in the fires. So the news basically is that pretty much all the closures have been lifted, meaning that all the forest that was off limits that, that burned during the Labor Day fires, you can now travel into most of it as you please. That's true of the big fires around us, including the Beachy Creek and Lionshead Fire in the Opal Creek and Jefferson area. It's true of the Holiday Farm area, the Archie Creek area, the Slater Fire area. Those were the big ones. So in essence, you can travel into those places. The problem remains access. Because while the forest is open, many of the road systems and trailheads are not. Forest crews are going to be removing hazard trees on the side of forest roads once the snow melts this spring. But that is work that could last into fall. And until those roads are made safe, uh, they're going to remain closed. So let me mention a few areas where this is going to be most prevalent. So the first is the North Fork Road area, the extremely popular road along the Little North Santium River that leads to Opal Creek. So that road has had a gate across it for the last two years, and that gate is going to stay closed through this summer unless you live up there. So it won't be open to go swimming or hiking or to poke around up there this summer. If you want to trek into the Opal Creek Wilderness, that area is technically open, but you won't be able to follow that road to get up there, the classic way to get up there. You'll have to find a back way to get in there, and that is not an easy thing to do. As for the Mount Jefferson Wilderness trailheads in the fire zone, ones like Whitewater Trailhead, Triangulation Peak, Brighton Bush Lake, those are going to stay closed to begin the summer. Again, crews are going to be working on the forest roads that lead to those throughout the summer, and those roads and those trailheads might start to reopen on a rolling basis. 
And once those roads do get open, and I have no idea when that'll happen, you'll just have to watch the Forest Service websites. You need to get a permit from an open trailhead to go into the wilderness. Now, I know this is complicated. It sounds, it's overly complicated. It sounds dumb, but it's the same situation as last year. Like last year, if you wanted to go into Jefferson Park, you know, the famous alpine meadow of lakes and wildflowers, and everybody wants to go there and see what it looks like. If you wanted to go there, you had to get a permit from an open trailhead, like Pamelia Lake, Marion Lake, or wherever. Once you had that permit, you could go in from those places and just hike north, or you could go in from whatever trailhead was open. So one thing people did last year, they would get a permit from Pamelia Lake, but then they'd go in via Woodpecker Ridge Trailhead, which was burned, but did open last summer. So yeah, again, that gets complicated. It's wonky, but that's the situation. You can go into these places, but the access is sometimes going to be tough. Anyway, there's a good map showing the roads that are closed on Willamette National Forest website. And the same is going to be true of Mount Hood National Forest within the scar of the Riverside Fire. A few of the roads are still closed there, but again, they're planning to gradually open them this summer and fall. And by the time we get to the end of this fall, a lot, pretty much all of the major road closures and trailhead closures and everything like that should be lifted. Now, the forest is still <laughs> going to be burned. There's still going to be hazards. There's still going to be different things there, but it should start to feel like it did before the fires, if only for the access standpoint. let's talk about a few great places to hike in the scars of the Labor Day fires. I've made this case before, but I'm always fascinated to see how forests rebound from fires. In some cases where there was a very high fire severity, they maintain that wasteland feeling for quite a while. In other areas, the forest rebounds rapidly into this riot of vegetation. And it's always interesting to see, you know, how a fire has impacted a forest, how a forest is recovering, because it's never quite the same. So for our purposes here, let's go from north to south. So on the north side is the Riverside Fire. And if you're going to explore that area, I like the idea of rafting the Clackamas River. You get to see the fire's impact and enjoy some pretty thrilling whitewater in the process. We did a podcast on the Clackamas River last summer that gets into that whitewater aspect, into the fire aspect. So check that out if you can. Moving just a little bit south, we're in the Beachy and Lion's Head Fire area. I've talked about these two places in previous podcasts, but the best views of the Beachy Creek Fire for me come from Rocky Top Trail, just before you get into Detroit. This is where you can get a view of the Opal Creek Wilderness and see just how extremely hot that fire burned. It's a pretty depressing view, but it's stark for sure, and you, you really feel it when you're on the top of Rocky Top and climb that mountain. Do a Google search, and you can find a story that I wrote about it. And then on the other side of the equation, uh, my favorite view of the Lion's Head Fire uh, is just up the road. It's not too far from Rocky Top, in fact. And that is at Stallman Point, which uh, rises right above Detroit Lake. Now, in this area, the fire didn't burn nearly as intensely. And you can see a lot of evidence of good fire. You know, the kind of fire that cleans up fuels, helps regenerate the forest. And then at the top, you can see kind of the whole sweep of the fire scar where the Lion's Head Fire and the Beachy Creek Fire came together in this massive, massive scar that is over 400,000 acres. Okay, heading to the south and just up the Mackenzie River Corridor, 
One of the better views of the Holiday Farm Fire comes from the top of a peak called Castle Rock. It's a really nice hike uh, in unburned forest with a really nice view at the top that gives you a good vantage not only of the Three Sisters and some other Cascade Peaks, but also of the scar of the Holiday Farm Fire in the Mackenzie River. I have a story, again, up about Castle Rock, so just look around for that. And there's like three different ways to get to that summit. Great hike, great view. Heading south, heading even further south, we're going into the Archie Creek Fire Scar. And in this area, I'd probably recommend Fall Creek Falls or Susan Creek Falls. They're pretty famous waterfalls with trailheads right on the side of Highway 138 east of Roseburg that I knew pretty well before the fire. And they've been basically transformed. The Archie Creek Fire burned at the highest fire severity of all the Labor Day fires. And you can definitely feel it here. This was once a dense rainforest where you hiked through there and, you know, then found the waterfalls. It's almost like an open desert at this point. Like there's still trees there, but they're basically matchsticks and you can see the waterfall from a really long way away. And so it's it's pretty striking and it definitely gives you a feel for the Archie Creek fire. The final place I'll highlight uh, the scar of is the Slater fire, which you may not be as familiar with, but that burned down on the border of Oregon and California. And I'm going to recommend the place that you check out there is Bolin Lake a really beautiful alpine mountain lake in the Klamath-Siskiyou Mountains. Unfortunately, the fire took out the famous Bolin Mountain Lookout, uh, which you could rent previously, and it gave you one of the best views in southern Oregon. You can still hike up there, but uh, alas, the, the lookout is no, no longer there. But the lake is still really pretty. The area definitely has mixed fire severity with a lot of the forest returning. There's a lot. It's it's a dynamic area. So, so okay, that's kind of all for the quick reports on the trial, the future plans, and some places to go and explore the scars of the Labor Day fires. So we're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsors. But when we come back, I'll post the podcast that I recorded just a few weeks after the Labor Day fires burned. And it gives kind of a play-by-play of just what happened, the ramp up, you know, the night, and what happened afterwards. So that's when we return. I'm Andy Geisler. I'm a forester at the American Forest Resource Council, and we're proud to sponsor the Explore Oregon podcast. Like you, I love the outdoors. On many days, the forest is my office. I work on the ground with public lands agencies on good forest management projects. Forest management helps achieve important conservation goals while providing sustainable timber. Science-based forestry helps improve wildlife habitat, outdoor recreation, clean air and water, and it's essential to providing renewable, climate-friendly wood products. Learn more about us at amforest.org. This message is brought to you by Visit Tillamook Coast. Beginning in the spring of 2023, the Tillamook Coast Visitors Association is excited to announce a volunteer vacation program that will bring groups from inside or outside Tillamook County to lend a hand in stewardship programs while also having a good time. One example of an itinerary would be spending one day clearing invasive brush or working on a hiking trail, while the next day could include a guided hike or kayak trip. The type of activity that highlights the Tillamook area and shows why doing stewardship projects is so important. 
All meals and transportation are included for the groups that take part, which will ideally be between 8 and 12 people. The experience is free for those who take part. The program is designed to offer participants the opportunity to give back to our popular area, while also learning the vital role stewardship plays in preserving our natural places. The program website will launch in March, so stay tuned for that. But if you want more information or to sign up early, contact Dan Hag, and you can reach him at dan at tillamacoast, all one word, dot com. All right, welcome back. Okay, this is part of a podcast that I recorded with former producer David Davis about a month after the fires ignited. We're both still pretty shell-shocked, but this should give you a sense for how we were feeling in the moment. I think it's worth including here because it gives a pretty detailed breakdown of just how that night unfolded, the events leading up to the fires, what happened during the fires, and then kind of the aftermath. I should mention that we talk mostly about the Sanium Canyon wildfires because they were the closest to us. They were the largest and most impactful in the moment, but there were generational disasters in many other places of the state. This isn't to minimize that, just a snapshot of one of the worst nights in state history and a moment I'll certainly never forget. So here that is. All right, David. So like I said in the introduction, this podcast is different. We've just been through an event that is going to change the states and our area for years to come. The number of wildfires is unprecedented in Oregon. And while we've had big fires in the past, this is the first time they've really swept through populated areas in such a dramatic way. Yeah, the numbers are actually still sort of being tallied at the various fires. And again, we won't know the full extent of the damage for quite some time, but these fires are really just jaw-dropping in their sort of destructive nature. And and just all over the state, too. Yeah, from from southern Oregon down in Medford and Ashland, the Mackenzie River area outside Eugene, around Blue River, and of course right here at home outside Salem in the Sanium Canyon. It's difficult because these are the places we know so well. We've reported a ton on Southern Oregon, and I lived in Southern Oregon for five, six years. Spent a lot of the time in McKenzie. But I live basically outside the Sanium Canyon, um, was evacuated for three days and have a lot of close friends there. And I've just lost count of the number of people who I've talked to who've lost homes. Yeah, so what we wanted to do with this podcast is kind of just a debrief for Zach and I sort of talk about how this happened. Um, we're going to start up with a kind of a lead up to the event. Um, you know, it was Labor Day weekend. Folks were out having a good time. We'll talk about the day it happened, how the fires formed and then spread and sort of what we've seen in the aftermath. I think that the only positive from this is this this is going to be a teachable moment of some kind because, look, we weren't really prepared for this. There was signs that something could happen. We were following it closely. The weather folks were, but it was like we couldn't put it all together because something like this has just never happened in Oregon. We've seen it happen in California and thought, well, we don't get that kind of weather. We don't, we're not that dry. But now we know it can happen here. And so this event is going to shape the future of wildfire management in the state. So let's go ahead and throw it back to Labor Day weekend. Right. So wildfires are something that we cover really closely here at the Statesman Journal. I've been doing it closely for almost a decade. And 
Honestly, the way this season was going, it was either normal or actually pretty quiet. Like if we would have ended in August, this would have been a really quiet season like 2019. It just it would have there wasn't that many fires. A few lightning storms had ignited fires in mid-August. Uh, the Green Ridge near Camp Sherman was probably the biggest example of that. But it wasn't that big of a deal. It was pretty much par for the course. But two that lasted and hung on for a little while were the Beachy Creek Fire in the Opal Creek Wilderness and the Lion's Head Fire, which started on Warm Springs and kind of grew onto the flanks of Mount Jefferson. Yeah, overall, it was a pretty light season. And honestly, we were kind of starting to let our guard down. Mm -hmm. We were slipping into fall, sort of expecting the weather to change. But, you know, then we sort of got this big weather event. Yeah, I mean, I I agree with that. I think we were starting to transition. We're thinking about school. Um, You know, we had just been through the pandemic and we were just getting ready for that fall thing, this sort of return to some semblance of normalcy. The first thing that caught my eye was just before Labor Day weekend, there was a sweeping shutdown of the Mount Jefferson Wilderness and the Pacific Crest Trail for seemingly no reason at the time when I first looked at it. And I noticed this because my buddy, he was planning to hike the Pacific Crest Trail from Sanium Pass uh, all the way north. He was finishing a segment that uh, he hadn't been able to complete previously. And so that Saturday, and it was September 5th, I helped him get around the closure by hiking into the Olali Lakes area via the Red Lake Trail. And as we're hiking up the trail that day, it's beautiful out. It's like the perfect fall day. It's like the crux of ideal Cascade Mountain hiking season. It's so beautiful. There's hardly any mosquitoes. And so I connect him with Pacific Crest Trail where it's open. And I decided to climb one of my favorite mountains called uh, Potato Butte. Um, and it offers this spectacular view of Mount Jefferson. So I'm climbing up this trail. It's, it's really steep, but eventually I'm starting to get views of the surrounding forest. And I see what at first looks like just a normal cloud um, on the horizon. But as I got higher, the cloud is rising and rising. And I realized that it's the, the lion's head fire, which was putting up what's called a protocumulus cloud. It's just a big, it looks like a mushroom cloud almost from an atomic bomb. And it's just rising and rising. And so I climbed up to the, the top of the peak and looked out and for just an hour watched this huge wildfire cloud just grow and grow and grow. And you could see it all across the Mount Jefferson area. And I remember thinking, okay, we're something's going on here. Like wildfire season isn't finished. And when I got home and started looking at the weather reports and started thinking about what was going to happen, it became clear that something something was going to happen. It wasn't clear what, but something. Yeah, it was probably around the same time. The National Weather Service was, you know, the meteorologists there were kind of becoming concerned. Um, they started sort of predicting this wind event that was kind of sort of coincide with a period of super low humidity. Yeah. The combination of which we usually don't see here. No. Especially by early fall, things are starting to moisten back up. Things are going to start turning green after kind of crisping up over summer. Yeah, it was like all these things started coming together at once. You had Oregon, which has been in a deep drought all year. We've been writing about how far we are behind rainfall-wise. So you got the deep drought. You got the fact that it's getting drier instead of wetter. And then you add this wind event, which just has no precedent. You know, we get big wind events in Oregon, but it's almost always from the Pacific and in the middle of the rainy season. You think of those crazy storms out on the Oregon coast. You know, they'll come inland and we'll get big wind, but it's always wet. 
and this was just something different. And so we have this once-in-a-generation weather system coming in with all these ominous ingredients, and it's going to slam into this growing wildfire that I'd sit around watching the other day. I, you know, Forest Service officials started getting really, really nervous. They shut down the entire Mount Jefferson area and even planned to do some areas beyond that because nobody knew what was going to happen. Something was going to happen, but it just wasn't clear what. The quote that I remember, and I wrote a story about it that Sunday, was it was like a hurricane hitting a wildfire, which that paints a picture. So officials, so emergency officials are definitely worried, but that's mostly in the forest because historically that's where our fires stay, even when they get big. There just hasn't been any recent precedent for fires sweeping down into populated areas. They stay high on the mountains and they might be, get big and they might impact our air quality, but they generally stay there. And I think that's what we were predicting to happen. So on Monday, ahead of all this, we went ahead and sent a, a team of photographers out into the field, kind of on Zach's recommendation. And we were kind of expecting early stages, more smoke to fill kind of the Sanium Pass area, you know, just to kind of see what was going on. I think what I was sort of expecting is, you know, I've reported a lot on the B&B &B complex. That's the big fire that occurred in 2003 in the same area. And basically, it, that fire threw up a 90,000-foot protocumulus cloud. But it was still safe to be out there. Like, and so I was sort of hoping to get a picture of that because it's this very dramatic image and then, you know, you're sort of off to the races. But that's not really what happened. You know, you and me are there and we're kind of updating as Monday goes along. And it starts just like, a, again, another beautiful, perfect September day. There's, it's a holiday weekend. There's people out in the mountains. It's just – it's beautiful. It's exactly what you want on that weekend. But slowly – smoke starts creeping in and we're not sure exactly where it's coming from. And then you start to see, feel this really eerie wind and it just felt like something strange was happening. We had one photographer, Virginia Beretta, who I had sent up uh, Stallman Peak above Detroit Lake. So it's a long hike to get up to this viewpoint. My idea was that she would get views of both wildfires if they exploded or, you know, blew up and threw up a big cloud. But she just got inundated with smoke, and so was everybody. So I told her, get out of there. It was just starting to feel really uneasy because things were filtering down, you know, into the valley. Yeah, actually, Monday afternoon, um, we were sort of short of reporters, so I went out to a commercial warehouse fire here in Salem. Mm -hmm. And it was about 5 p.m. that, you know, I was surrounded by smoke from this warehouse fire or whatever, but you notice the sky started turning orange. And that's about when all the air quality monitors started measuring an increase in particulates. Mm -hmm. And you're like, well, this smoke is now here. Yeah, some, yeah, something was happening. And so by and large, Oregonians had been oblivious to this event. They weren't looking at the weather because it was beautiful out. They weren't really expecting anything to happen. And so these stories I'd been writing all day Monday, not very many people were reading them. And then all of a sudden, like... They just go crazy because people are feeling this weird energy. They're smelling the smoke. Everybody knows something's happening, but nobody is exactly sure what it is. So then as we kind of move into evening, that's when some of the alerts start rolling in. First, we saw down in the Eugene area um, along the Holiday Fire it sort of prompted a bunch of evacuations along Mackenzie Bridge, and then they actually shut down Highway 126. 
So so it's evening and you can tell the wind is picking up, things are happening, and my power went out. And it stayed out for about two or three hours. Didn't know when I was going to be able to, to get back uh, to work or anything. So kind of shut it down for a while. Did a little bit more work. My power came back on at uh, 11 p.m. Did some work, but then kind of just dozed off. It didn't feel like a whole lot else was happening, but uh, that was that was just the beginning. Yeah, so I went ahead and picked up the baton uh, at that point. And so I'm kind of settling in for sort of a long evening. And I noticed they had issued an, evacu- an elevated evacuation notice for Detroit, right. but it said it wasn't supposed to take effect until Tuesday. Yeah, the next and day. And so that was a little curious. Um, and so, you know, we posted a story, updated it, and we're sort of watching, you know, as these things develop. You're and, watching. I'm asleep. <laughs> yeah. And I want to say it was around – it was before midnight. I noticed that ODOT had actually shut down Highway 22 from Mahama all the way up to San Diem Junction. Yeah. And I was like, well, that's curious. I start writing that update, and then probably 10 minutes later, we get the notice that – the Marion County Sheriff's Office has issued level three get out now evacuation for pretty much all the small uh, towns along Highway 22 in the Sandium Canyon. And to put this in context, that om- that almost never happens because we've I've, we've never seen that. Yeah, because this there's a gradual process to this as a fire grows and people get more concerned. There's level one, you know be prepared like level two be set get set to go at any moment and then level three is like the the alarm bell get out of there but here it was zero to a hundred in in just like that so i was still sleeping at that point but i i don't know when did you decide to text me uh well so i was writing the updates sending the alerts updating our social channels trying to manage all that was coming in at that point and again details were kind of scant yeah um i mean we were getting the official notices but there wasn't – there was sort of some chatter on some some of the community Facebook groups. And the um, scanner. The scanner was definitely starting to yeah, blow up. Yeah. So and at that point, we could actually hear the Marion County Sheriff's Office sort of rallying teams to go start banging on doors mm-hmm. and sort of start evacuating uh, some of those towns. And so I had, I had dozed off and I wake up to this this text from you saying – yeah, I think I, I texted you. It was a little after 1 a.m. And you basically said, I think the Sanium Canyon's on fire. And it was – it began what was the strangest morning for me and a total nightmare for thousands of people who live just to our just to our east. So, okay, so why don't we take a moment here to kind of explain what was happening on the ground at this point? Because it was really between 9.30 and 11 p.m. Labor Day night when things started to go very badly in the Sanium Canyon. Yeah, we've talked about how everyone was preparing for these two existing wildfires, both the Beachy Creek and Lion's Head, mm-hmm. to grow and possibly become a problem. That's what everyone had sort of planned around. But really, something else ended up happening that night that was far worse. Right. So I think the best place to illustrate this is in Gates, where around 9.45 p.m., Multiple people describe power lines coming down, transformers exploding in the shower of sparks that kick-started multiple fires. The most striking place this happened was at the Old Gates Elementary School, where a team of around 300 firefighters were stationed. They were actually working the original Beachy Creek fire, so we're talking about an elite team of wildland firefighters, 
And at 945, they're having a staff meeting when all of a sudden the power lines come down and it just starts major fires right there at the school, right at their incident command headquarters. They did fight it, but were eventually just overwhelmed by this firestorm that developed and were forced to evacuate. Around the same time, Potato Hill, which rises just right above Gates, it goes up in flames. And so this occurred in multiple places in the Sanium Canyon, and those flames just got whipped up on 75-mile-per-hour winds, and, you know, things went downhill from there. The description of what those hours were like for people in the way of the flames are truly harrowing. We've written a number of profiles from people trapped by fire, and they really paint a terrifying picture. Yeah, it was thousands of people basically waking up in the middle of the night and discovering that everything around them was on fire and just this mad dash to try and escape. One of the areas this was most terrifying was up the Little North Sanium Canyon. What happened there is that the wind knocked down these trees across the road, so you had people discovering the flames trying to evacuate and getting stuck on, stuck on down trees. I wrote about a guy named Don Myron who, after getting trapped, spent the night on a rock in the middle of the river, basically using a plastic chair to shield himself from this hurricane of embers. Another guy, a former teacher from Kaiser, also got stuck on a downed tree and literally ran four miles through flames to escape and had burns on 20% of his body. The Little Norfolk area was the worst by all accounts. All five people that died in this wildfire event were in that area. Again, because of the really awful combination of flames engulfing the entire canyon and downed trees that prevented people from escaping. As all of this is happening, we're just trying to keep up with this mad stream of information, trying to get a handle on what's happening. You know, we published this story saying there's multiple wildfires in the Sanium Canyon that are spreading fast. And I realize as I'm, I'm writing this that it's actually within striking distance of my house. So I got my wife and my kids up and I sent them to, to West Salem. And at that point, I got a text from my buddy Mike who lives in Mill City. And he's just like, hey, I just had to evacuate. Here's some video. And the video he showed me, which I, I later posted on Twitter that morning, was like just the beginning of realizing how serious it was. It shows him driving basically through a tunnel of flames on Highway 22. And at that moment, you know, I'm also getting pictures of Detroit Lake basically on fire. And then you, you know that this is serious, that this is not just, you know, some of these fires that have grown the way we expected, that this is like uh, an event that we're always going to remember. And I remember I was just kept writing, kept working and updating. And I look outside and it's like 8 a.m. at this point, And I expect there to be some light, but it's still super dark, like the darkest night and just felt really spooky. And I realized I was on level two and I was like, okay, well, time to hand this off. I, I got to get out of here. Yeah. And then, of course, the fear is, you know, where does where does it stop? Yeah, because it's it, it had, the fire had reached Lyons and, you know, there were spot fires all over Lyons. At that point, they sort of raised the evacuation levels in, in Staten. Then it's, it's really coming into urban areas at that point. Yeah. We had to sort of cut through a bunch of rumors that were swirling around about when and where the evacuation levels were going to be raised. I think by morning, the fire advancement had settled down yeah. and we were sort of starting to cut to trying to wrap our head around the damage, really. It, it's true because it, it started moving towards Staten and then it moved northwest. It just... For whatever reason, the winds changed, conditions changed, and it just it stopped moving directly west towards Staten and then beyond that, Salem. So 
that was the that was that morning. It was chaotic, and it was just trying to figure out is Staten safe, and that was that was that was it. So in that time period, from Monday night until Tuesday morning, that's when the vast majority of damage was done in the Sanium Canyon. It basically, after that, moved northwest. And at this point, we basically have three giant fires on top of each other. We have the Lion's Head Fire, we have the Beachy Creek Fire, and then we had this newly started Sanium Fire. And it just created this corridor of wildfire, the likes of which we've never seen before. So by Tuesday morning, wildfires are still going around the state. And here at home, we're kind of starting to take stock in the damage done in the St. Am Canyon. Photos start coming in showing extensive destruction in Detroit, Gates, Mill City. And you start writing about what happened. What do we know so far? Yeah, we started piecing together exactly how this happened because it happened so fast. So to step back in time a little bit, there's, there's two active fires we're watching. We've got the Beachy Creek in the Opal Creek Wilderness, and then Lion's Head at Mount Jefferson area. Both of those fires blew up and ran miles. But the most destructive fires were actually from the down power lines. They actually started 13 different wildfires right on the canyon floor. So they, they you know, sparked and then they spread on these 50, 60 mile per hour winds and create just basically a firestorm that ran down the canyon. That they started right there explains why it was so fast and so difficult for people to know that they were there because they the fire started there instead of coming there. And that's why it was such a, a, a tough thing. We've done a lot of reporting on the power lines and the role they played and specifically why they weren't shut down. Where are we on that front? Right. So we know that power lines were turned off in a number of places across the state, including Mount Hood. Some power lines were also shut down in the Sanium Canyon, uh, the ones operated by Consumers Power. But the main provider in that area, Pacific Power, did not shut down their power lines. They basically said the Sanium Canyon wasn't in a power safety shutoff area. The areas they considered dangerous enough to consider these pretty drastic actions of shutting down power. And so even though there was this extreme weather event that had been predicted for three days, they, they chose not to shut it down. We wrote a story with a lot more detail on that subject, and uh, there was actually a class action lawsuit that was filed against them. It's worth mentioning that it's still unclear where one fire started and the other began. A final report's expected on the subject, and it hasn't come yet, but we'll be covering it as soon as it does. You have all three of these fires that are blowing up at once, Beachy Creek, Lion's Head, and then the power line fire that was briefly called the Sanium Fire. So those all three of them eventually merged together, forming this one giant fire that at this point is almost 500,000 acres, which is the same size as the Biscuit Fire, this very famous wildfire in southwest Oregon that was previously considered like the standard for all massive wildfires. Like that fire was how you measured every other wildfire in Oregon. And now we have totally surpassed that because that one occurred in, you know, a roadless wilderness area, destroyed a lot of forest, but not like this, where it really came into a populated area. Obviously, we're still kind of just at the beginning of a lot of this. And this trio of wildfires is just one of the major wildfires that lit up. But from what you've been able to kind of observe as these areas have reopened, what's the future? What kind of landscape are we going to be looking at? I mean, a lot of homes and businesses were lost. This area is never going to be exactly the same as it was. I was up in Detroit the first day people were allowed to return, and it was shocking. There's huge gaps in the middle of what used to be downtown because of burned down buildings. It does look a little bit like a war zone. 
At the same time, plenty of places did survive in Lyons, Mill City, and even up in Detroit. And look, people are already talking about rebuilding. There, there was a lot of resiliency up in Detroit and optimism about the future. This area is going to come back because people love that area. Detroit Lake itself is still pretty green. And once you get outside Detroit, the fire damage isn't nearly as bad as you head up towards Mount Jefferson. The upper North Sanium above Detroit looks pretty normal. It's not like everything is gone by any stretch of the imagination. So speaking of which, and you hate to talk about it since it's kind of small potatoes compared to people's lives, but what about recreation in the area? It's a huge part of that area's economy and really what draws folks out there. Yeah. I mean, that piece is tough and it's important. It's why people live and visit that area. It's the outdoor beauty. That's that's why I moved out to that area. And it's tough because the fire basically wiped out the network of parks and campgrounds along the North Sanium River, like Fisherman's Bend, Pack Saddle, North Sanium State Park. That area is going to take a long time to rebuild. It, the fire burned really hot between Detroit and Gates. It killed almost all the trees. It's, that's going to take a while. In another beloved area, the Little North and Opal Creek area, there was also extensive damage, including to bridges that access it. There's no timetable at all for that area opening, and it probably won't be anytime soon. But I mean, look, we've had big wildfires out in the forest before, and wildfires are a natural part of the ecosystem. So the forest itself is, is going to heal long term. That's not really the concern. I think the big question is just how and when this network of parks, roads, bridges, and trails will be rebuilt. I mean, it might be a really long time. As someone, again, who lives in that area and loves it, and who loves fishing on the North Sanium and camping on, at Detroit, it's just tough because it's not going to be the same place, and it's going to take a while to come back. We just have to do our best, give it time to heal, and, you know, roll up our sleeves, I guess. All right, well, that's about all the time we have left in today's show. If you liked what you've heard, check out our catalog of more than 60 episodes featuring Oregon's most beautiful and interesting places at statesmanjournal.com explore, along with Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, and Spotify. We'd once again like to thank our sponsors, beginning with the American Forest Resources Council. AFRC supports responsible forestry on public lands throughout the Pacific Northwest for our environment, for our economy, and for the future. Learn more at amforests.org. We'd also like to thank Visit Tillamook Coast. If you want to plan a trip out there, you can check out their outdoor recreation map that shows all the places to hike, swim, boat, and camp. You can find that map at tillamookcoast.com slash recreation hyphen map. Once again, that's tillamookcoast.com slash recreation hyphen map. And thanks to the Oregon Parks and Recreation Department, which stresses the importance of recreating responsibly and leaving no trace in Oregon's outdoors. Thanks for listening, and we hope you'll join us next time for the next edition of the Explore Oregon podcast.